lesson on the essentials of, of salvation. So I figured you might want to follow along. If you weren't here this morning, I uh, did a little bit of a review of what we were doing. Now this morning I talked about the essentials of salvation. And here are a few key ideas that summarize the lesson that we had this morning before we go on to uh, complete this uh, series tonight. First of all, I said or mentioned that the trend in religion today is to bring in as many people together as possible, regardless of the compromises that are made regarding issues of doctrine. It doesn't matter what you compromise, it seems, so long as we can all be together under one roof. That seems to be the trend today. Now, the move towards unity is commendable. It's even biblical. Jesus said, commanded, that we be one. But there are certain things that cannot be compromised. And these I refer to as essentials. Now, the Bible teaches us that there are some things which are essential for salvation. And without these things, a person cannot call himself or herself a Christian. Cannot be saved. These are not things that I've invented for the purpose of this sermon. These are things that are in the Bible. Now, I described three of these essentials this morning. The first was faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That's one of the essentials. If you don't have that, you're not a Christian. Nothing mean-spirited about that. That's just basic. The Bible teaches in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved, you need to believe that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God, and nothing less than that will do. I also said that we needed to repent from sin. Repentance is an essential. You cannot be a child of God unless you have made a conscious decision that you're going to do away with sin in your life. And then I mentioned baptism in Jesus' name. Every instance that we see salvation occurring in the New Testament when they describe it, they're always talking about someone being baptized. And so baptism is an essential, is one of the essentials. Now I said that the Bible teaches that without these essential elements, a person cannot be saved. A person cannot be considered Christian. As a matter of fact, without these essentials, Christianity is no longer Christianity. Now, it might be a religion of some sort, because there are a lot of religions and a lot of church buildings, even church buildings with crosses on them, that don't require faith in Jesus, that don't require any kind of conscious repentance, that certainly don't require baptism in any shape or form, and yet call themselves churches. But the Bible says, without these essentials that I described, you don't have, you, you might have something, but what you've got is not Christianity. Tonight, we're going to look at one other essential of salvation. And then we're going to answer some typical questions and accusations brought out because we hold to the idea that there are certain essentials with regard to salvation. Now, when you hold to this position that there are essentials, you are ripe for criticism. And I want to kind of express those criticisms and maybe answer some of them as part of my lesson. I would ask Jimmy to just turn this down here because I'm getting some little feedback on this thing. Now, the fourth essential of salvation and the Christian religion is the Holy Spirit. 
If you were wondering this morning, if you were here this morning, you're saying, oh, he didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit, fourth essential of salvation. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, uh, Peter joins the idea of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit as two sides to the same salvation idea. Yes, you repent and you are baptized and you receive the forgiveness of sins and, he says, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The idea is that in the past, sin and death, were the center of a person's existence. But now, through faith expressed in repentance and baptism, a new life emerges where sin is forgiven and the Holy Spirit becomes the central figure in a Christian's life. You know, we don't say that often, do we? That the Holy Spirit becomes the central force, the central figure in our Christian life. And yet, that's what happens That was the promise of the prophets. The promise of the prophets was not simply that men would be forgiven their sins. The promise of the prophets throughout the ages was that the time would come when all people would have the Holy Spirit. Not just the prophets, not just the kings, not just the judges, not just the measure, but that everyone would possess the Holy Spirit himself. And so Peter declares the glorious news that Jesus has died and resurrected in order to affect what? In order to affect not only the forgiveness of sins, but the forgiveness of sins only prepares us as vessels to receive the true gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit. Okay? The forgiveness is a means. It is the means that God uses to give us what he ultimately wanted to give us, and that is the Holy Spirit. Don't stop short. The Holy Spirit is the end game. It's the final purpose of God that each one of us possess the Holy Spirit. Now, now, I'm not saying that we have to agree on the issue of how the Holy Spirit interacts with us as human beings. You know, whether he dwells within the Christian or whether he expresses himself in the Christian's life through the influence of the word. Those of you who have studied this know what I'm talking about. This is not essential. This is not the essential issue concerning the Holy Spirit. The essential issue concerning the Holy Spirit is whether or not, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, We are being led by the Spirit. It's not about how does the Spirit interact with us. It's about are we being led by the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. Paul says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Notice he didn't say, for all who understand that the Holy Spirit actually dwells within them, those are the the, the children of God, the sons of God. No, no. No, no. He says, for those who are being led by the Holy Spirit, those are the ones who are the sons of God. And by implication, those are the ones who are the saved. Those are the ones who are the Christians. We usually say that the final essential of salvation is faithfulness, don't we? You know, the plan of salvation, you've got to be faithful. But I'm saying to you that Jesus tells his disciples that they must remain faithful until the end in order to be saved. But remaining faithful is not something that stands all by itself or that a human being can accomplish by himself. No, remaining faithful until the end is something that happens as a result of following after the Holy Spirit 
as a result of yielding to the Holy Spirit, as a result of submitting to the direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's how you remain faithful to the end. You don't remain faithful to the end by gritting your teeth and hanging on. You don't remain faithful to the end through sheer human willpower. You don't remain faithful to the end through habit. You remain faithful to the end by following the lead of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will lead you to Christ in the end. That's what it's about. Being led by the Holy Spirit is not some mysterious thing. It's not some subjective idea beyond observation. Among other things, you can say and you can know and you can understand that you're being led by the Spirit when you read the Bible and do what it says. You read the Bible and do what it says, you're being led by the Holy Spirit. You know, the people who heard the apostles preach on Pentecost and they responded to the apostles by repenting of their sins and by being baptized, they were following the lead of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was saying, repent and be baptized. And those who did that were following the lead of the Holy Spirit. When we follow our conscience in the light of God's Word, we are being led by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will encourage us in good and will discourage us from evil. You know you're following the Holy Spirit when, when something is before you, when good and evil are before you, and you choose, despite everything your flesh says to do, you choose to follow what is right and good. You're following after the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us, if by the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, when you say no to temptation, when you say no to the flesh, you're following after the Holy Spirit. There's nothing mysterious about it. There's no, you know, ooh, you know, there's no darkening the lights, turning on the candles. That's occultism. That's mystery. That's magic. Following after the Spirit is doing the right thing. In light of God's Word, you're following the Holy Spirit. Nothing mysterious about it. When you follow the leadership of godly people in the church, you're following the lead of the Holy Spirit. People who behave in a Christ-like manner and who lead you in the church, they are the agents of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think Paul says through the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers? Paul is talking to the elders and he's saying to the elders, the Holy Spirit has made you leaders. And he encourages the leaders to lead by example, by obedience, by purity. When we follow the example of our leaders, we are in effect following not our leaders, but we are following the Holy Spirit as they follow the Holy Spirit. There are times when there is a burden in our lives. There's a time when there is a, a yearning to do a good work. There's a time when we need to proclaim the gospel and we feel compelled to do it. I believe this is the Holy Spirit at work within us. Something good is in front of us and we say, I, it's inconvenient, it's going to cost me money, but I've just got to do this. This is important, I've got to do it. Or I, I was supposed to go to this school and I've decided to go to this school. Or, or I, I was thinking of, 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 of doing this kind of work, 
but the Lord is calling me to preach or, or to do mission work or to be a medical missionary or a nurse or something. Who do you think is doing that? The devil? The devil doesn't call you to preach. The devil doesn't encourage you to do good. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul was provoked by the Holy Spirit when he was in pagan Athens. And I think that even today we are provoked to do God's will. We are provoked to proclaim his name in places where his name has not yet been spoken. Every time you decide to put your dollar and your change in the box so a Bible can go to a place where the gospel isn't preached, who moves you to do that? Your flesh? No. The Holy Spirit moves you to do that. Those who follow this lead, those who are guided by the Holy Spirit in this way, receive blessings that are not available in any other way. For example, people who follow the lead of the Holy Spirit produce the fruit of the Spirit. You know, Jesus said the most important things to love God and to love others as you love self. How do you think we are able to do that? The Holy Spirit produces that fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, purity. All those fruits, if you wish, are produced by the Holy Spirit. People who follow the Holy Spirit experience a more meaningful and effective prayer life. Romans chapter 8 verse 13. People who follow after the Holy Spirit discover and develop spiritual abilities in the service of Christ. In Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 also, uh, Paul talks about the different gifts that different members of the church have to serve God. In the first century, some of those gifts were miraculous and others were what we call ordinary gifts, special gifts to teach or to give or to lead. The Spirit still provides those gifts today, but to those people who follow after Him. People who follow after the Spirit mature in their wisdom and in their knowledge of life and conduct. They grow in assurance of their salvation. You know, the more you mature in Christ, it's not so much the more you know the Bible by heart or you know the arguments. No, maturity in Christ is expressed by a greater confidence in your salvation based on faith in Jesus Christ. A mature man or a mature woman in Christ is the person who is not afraid of condemnation because that person is absolutely confident that Jesus' blood covers every single one of their sins. I know a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible, who have been to church all their lives, who know all the routines and are still afraid of dying, who are still afraid that God will condemn them. They are not yet mature in Jesus Christ. And people who follow after the Spirit, of course, are resurrected from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think God needed to forgive us? He needed to forgive us so that we would be a pure vessel into which he could place the Holy Spirit. And why do you think he needed to place the Holy Spirit within us? So that at the right time, he could, through the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrect us from the dead. That's the point. From the beginning of time, God has planned our resurrection from the dead. These experiences are the marks of the people who are faithful. And allowing ourselves to be led by the Holy Spirit 
is the only way to develop these attributes of faithfulness. Okay, so the questions are asked, who is saved? Who will go to heaven? What are the essentials? And the answer is that there are essentials. There are basics that can't be traded away to avoid conflict or to gain a bigger group. You know, I mean, if we compromised on a couple of things, we could double this church in no time. You know what I'm saying? If we just let some stuff slide, we could, you know, I could get out there in the public square and start preaching and say, okay, everybody in your own mind, now if you feel you're saved, you're saved. Boys, we could say, hey, we saved a hundred people last week. It's a different story when you call on people to come forward and to actually con- uh, repent of their sins and to submit themselves to God's command to be buried in the water. That's impractical. That's humbling. And for some, that's an obstacle. We can't trade those things away because God has given us those things. And so I believe that the New Testament establishes the essentials that are required for salvation, required for Christianity to be Christianity. One more time. Number one, an unwavering belief that Jesus is truly the only Son of God, divine Savior of the world. That he is no less than this, and that only he is this, and that our salvation is based on faith in this fact. That's essential. Number two, repentance and baptism are the God-ordained ways of expressing our faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in Christ, and how does God tell me to express that faith? By repenting of my sins and being immersed in water uh, in the name of Jesus. Not just repentance, not just baptism, but both a sincere change and a burial in water are what God has clearly set forth as our response to his offer of forgiveness. You know, maybe we can figure out who's been properly baptized or not. But I'll tell you something. God can figure out not only who's been properly baptized or not, but who has properly repented or not. We might be able to ask somebody, oh, you know, what was the date of your baptism? Were you immersed? You know, we might be able to figure that one out, but make no mistake, God knows who has sincerely repented. And repentance is as much a requirement as baptism, even if it's a little more difficult to discern. God can discern it, and he will. And then finally, a spirit-filled life as a witness of our continued faith and a testimony of the risen Jesus to the world. How do we testify that Jesus Christ is alive? Because people see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's how they see him. You know, some people say, well, hey, you forget the step about confessing Christ. And we think confessing Christ is being in the water and saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, we think that's confessing Christ. No, 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 no. Yes, that is a way of confessing Christ, of acknowledging him in a public way. But confessing Christ is confessing him, of demonstrating his spirit in your life day after day until there are no more days of your life. That's confessing Christ. When Jesus returns for his own, he will know them not by the date on their certificate of baptism. He will know them by the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Don't you bother showing him a piece of paper. You show him the Holy Spirit in your lives to demonstrate that you're one of his. Now, these are not the only things in the Bible. These are not the only things in Christianity. But these are the essentials. If you have these, you have Christians. 
And if these are missing, it doesn't matter what you've got. You're missing the important things. Okay. Of course, when you hold to these ideas, I told you there are questions and sometimes criticisms. Here are some of the more common questions and criticisms that I'll make an attempt at. Where too many people have a question and answer period, so I've tried to guess ahead. What would be the most common questions? Certainly the ones that I've come across in Bible studies with people. Here's one. Why do you choose these as the essentials? Who made you the judge? Who made you the big chief? Who made you the big theologian that you can list what are the essentials? Well, what I looked for in looking for the essentials were the things that the Bible itself associated with salvation. I didn't look in, you know, Church of Christ manuals. We don't have a catechism. We don't ascribe to those type of things. I simply looked at the Bible and asked myself, what does the Bible associate with salvation? You see, salvation is the essential idea. Salvation is the bottom line. Whether we go to heaven or to hell, that's what's really important. Everything else is secondary. When you're on your deathbed, you're not worried about... <laughs> You know, you're not worried about, I don't know, issues. You know, women deacons. You know, you're not worried about that. When you're on your deathbed, I mean, I've ministered to people who are close to death, and trust me, they were not thinking about instrumental music at the time. When they're on their deathbed, there's only one thing they want to know. Am I going to heaven? That's all I want to know. Am I going to heaven? The things that I have mentioned, Faith in Jesus as God, repentance and baptism, spirit-filled living. These were the only things that the Bible specifically said that you must have in order to be saved. When we have to speak, we must remember the old adage of the restoration movement. We need to speak where the Bible speaks. And where the Bible is silent, we need to remain silent. So why do... We choose these because the Bible chooses these, because the Bible associates these with salvation and none other. Here's another question or another criticism. Well, you know, the Church of Christ are a bunch of legalists. You guys are narrow-minded legalists. You're Pharisees. Now, some say this because we actually make a distinction between those who are saved and those who are lost. They don't like that. You know, you're not allowed to judge, they say. You're so judgmental. Who are you to judge who's going to heaven, who's going to hell? You people are so legalistic. Sometimes people say, you think you're the only ones going to heaven, right? You think you're the only people going to heaven. Now, there's a major misunderstanding here when people say that. First of all, it's the definition of legalism. They don't know what legalism is. Legalism is a belief that you can actually be saved by perfect obedience. That's legalism. That you are actually accomplishing perfect obedience. That's legalism. The Pharisees in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Pharisees believed this. They believed that you could be saved by obeying the law, and they believed that they were obeying the law. They didn't need Jesus. What do we need to sacrifice for our sins? We're obeying the law. We're okay. People also say this because we include baptism as an essential. And they claim that this is a work. They're saying, oh, you're saying you've got to be baptized. That's a work. You people are legalists. 
Well, I think we understand that we cannot be saved by perfect obedience. That's why Jesus died for our sins. But you do have to exercise some obedience in order to be saved. I mean, I hate to kind of uh, throw a wet towel or a wet blanket on your party here, but you have to exercise some obedience in order to be saved. The Bible says that you have to believe, right? And you have to obey that command and exercise your will in order to believe. Who would argue that you, you don't have to believe in order to be saved? Nobody. Well, when you believe, your mind takes in information and decides whether it's true or not and then accepts it. That's an act of the will. That's, that's obedience, isn't it? The Bible says that you have to repent. Again, no one would argue that a Christian shouldn't repent from their sins. Everybody agrees on that. And yet, you have to obey a command, don't you? The Bible says repent. You have to obey. You have to change things. If you were, a, I don't know, if you were addicted to some sort of substance, you've got to stop doing that. If you're married and you've got a girlfriend on the side, you've got to let go of that girlfriend. You know what I'm saying? Things got to change. There's something you have to obey. We simply say that God also says that we must be baptized. And so we obey that command in order to be saved. You see, brothers, we're not legalistic. We simply want to be obedient to God and respond to God in a way that God desires. That's not legalism. That's love. That's love. Last time I heard, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Jesus is the one who associated love with obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. There's a relationship between love and obedience. And what we say is, God, just tell us what you want us to do and we will do it. That's not legalism. That's love. That's respect. That's piety. That's a desire to do God's will and that's pleasing. Throughout all of history, God has loved those who desired to obey him. Notice, it's not those who obeyed him perfectly, because no one ever did. God loves the ones who desire to do his will. And I like to think that we are that kind of people. We want to know what God wants from us, and we want to do it. Another question here, need to move on, is this. What about all the nice religious people who don't have the essentials? What about the, I mean, you know, what about the nice religious people in the world who don't have these essentials? Now, the mistake here is a form of legalism, but in reverse. Strange. This is the assumption that we can exchange a measure of human niceness or zeal for salvation. This person is nice, therefore that person can trade being nice for being saved. Or this person is zealous, really believes in their thing, whatever it is. And that person can exchange zeal for salvation. The Bible tells us that God sees into the hearts of every single person. And God determines that all people, without exception, are sinners. And all people need his grace. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now how do you think God came to that conclusion? You think he guessed it? You think he just kind of, it was like a crapshoot? You know, he just kind of shot the dice and said, hey, you know, 
Seven's everybody's guilty. Eleven, everybody's saved. Oh, seven, sorry. No. God has the power to look inside of every single human heart from the beginning till the end of time. And God has looked into every single heart of every single person ever lived. And he has determined that every single person is a sinner and every single person needs his grace. That's why Paul wrote that in Romans 3. What we do is deny this fact and we say that this or that person is nice enough or zealous enough to stand before God without Christ and without obeying Christ. We decide what the gospel is going to be. The gospel of nice. The gospel of zeal. But the Bible says that each individual needs Christ and each individual comes to Christ in exactly the same way and that is by obeying him. Everybody, everybody comes to God the same way. You and me and Mr. Clinton and, and, and Yeltsin and uh, you know, Marilyn Monroe and Madonna. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And the sports heroes... Everybody comes to Christ the same way. They believe, they repent, they are baptized, they live a spirit-filled life. No exceptions. That's justice. The whole point of the gospel is that it doesn't matter how nice you are, or how many good deeds you do, or how zealous you are in your religion. Without the essentials, there is no salvation. Brothers and sisters, that's why we evangelize. That's why I became a preacher. It dawned on me the only way people could be saved is if they heard and obeyed the gospel. And it dawned on me, well, somebody better get out there and start doing it because where I come from, there weren't a lot of preachers. And there's still not a lot of preachers in this world. No Jesus, no salvation. That's the terrible, awful truth of life. That's why when you give your money... Uh, to Robert's uh, ministry, or we help Jean Sirard in Haiti, or we support people in Brazil, uh, the caves in Brazil. You know, when we do that, we are doing that because we believe this. That's why we do that. And then the last, there could be more, but I tried to pick the general ones. The last one is this. Are people who worship with mer uh, musical instruments saved? Kind of a dumb question in a way, but I get that asked all the time. Now, you could ask this question a thousand different ways. For example, are people who have women deacons, are they saved? Um, are people who don't use Church of Christ on the door, are they saved? Are people who don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible, how about them, are they saved? And a thousand other combinations. In other words... If someone has the essentials but not the other things, are they still saved? Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, yes, because they have the essentials. The essentials that are associated with salvation. If you have them, you have salvation. If God wanted to base salvation on whether or not we had an organ, he would do that. But he didn't. He didn't. Now, if you're taking notes, Please realize the next thing I'm going to say. However, we need to understand that the danger of false or incorrect doctrine, even in the non-essentials, the danger in this 
is that eventually it leads to the compromise of the essentials themselves. That's the danger. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you have the essentials, you have what it needs to be saved. But if you compromise the non-essentials, it's only a matter of time before the essentials themselves begin to fall by the wayside. For example, believing that the Bible is inspired by God, like all of the Bible is inspired by God, believing that is not essential for salvation. You don't have to confess in the waters of baptism. You don't have to say, I believe that every single page is without mistake in the Bible. You don't have to say that to be saved. But if you reject the inspiration of the Bible, it will not be very long before you reject the deity of Christ. Before you reject all the things that keep you saved and eventually reject and jeopardize your own salvation. Because if the Bible isn't inspired, why believe in Jesus in the first place? See what I'm saying? I'll give you another example. There are a lot of denominations who began with the essentials that I'm talking about, but they also experimented with incorrect teachings on lesser issues like instruments of music or women's role in the church or uh, all kinds of other uh, uh, doctrines. And a hundred years later, a lot of people in their churches are denying the divinity of Christ and the authority of the Bible, and this is well documented. Many churches, quote, that began on the right track a hundred years ago are now at the point where they don't even believe anymore that Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, when you compromise the non-essentials, it's only a matter of time before the essentials also fall by the wayside. We have to be careful to respect all of God's word, not just the essentials, because we are responsible not only for our own souls, and when we knowingly teach false doctrine, we jeopardize our own souls. But we are also responsible for passing on to the next generation the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why teachers have to be very, very careful. They will incur a more strict judgment. Why? Because it's our job to make sure that we pass on to the next generation the whole gospel. Not just the essentials but even the non-essentials, intact. A lot of teaching today, a lot of ideas, but the essential idea is this. Are you saved? That's the bottom line. And I thought, what am I going to preach when I get back? Well, I thought I'd get back to the very basic core idea of what preaching is all about before we move to other subjects in the weeks to come. Are you saved? It's the question you need to answer with assurance if you are to live with peace of mind and joy in this life. cannot have peace of mind unless you are absolutely sure that you are saved. You are if you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, if you have repented of your sins and been baptized, and if you allow the Spirit to lead your life, you are saved. Have confidence, rejoice, face the future with joy. But if you don't have these essentials, you can be saved tonight by confessing Christ, by being baptized, repenting of your sins. You can be saved. And we have gathered here tonight to pray for you, to encourage you, to minister to you in any way that we can. 
If you've fallen away, if you've rejected Christ, if you've been unfaithful, again, the church, the elders are here to pray for you that you might be restored, that you might have the joy of the Lord restored to you once again. Whatever your needs, we encourage you to come forward now as uh, David leaves us uh, in a final song of invitation. Oh, song of invitation. Oh, song of invitation. Oh, song of invitation. Oh, song of invitation.